Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 18 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and Joe Brand is my queen. I'm joined by... I'm Hannah Dunleavy and this week I had a car pass on MOT. First time. For the first time ever. And I'm Jen Offord and last week I went to a Craig David gig. Thanks Vodafone. <laughs> and if you want to tweet in and ask why, feel free. <laughs> Later on, bona fide American Taylor Glenn joins us to talk about a year of Trump. Poet Lisa Lux talks war poetry. Sarah answers another vital life question. And I do Disney's Tangled. But first, sexual harassment, sexual harassment and... Se- oh, for God's sake. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where women talk about what's been happening in the news, or if you're a Daily Mail reader, squawk in hysteria. Ian Hislop joined the Band of Brothers speaking out about uh, how we shouldn't be taking sexual harassment seriously this week. In an episode of Have I Got News For You, Hislop responded to stories about sexual harassment in Parliament by laughing it off as not high-level crime. Unrepentant, he sat with his hand over his mouth, masking sniggers as guest host and all-round wonderful human Joe Brand explained to him that even comparatively low levels of harassment became wearing after time. Elsewhere, in the surely as a posh white man, my views of your experience must be more valid brigade, Douglas Murray lamented in an article for The Spectator that the consequence of this new sexual counter-revolution, no sex at all. Douglas Bay. I think you need to have a word with yourself if you think business time is impossible in a world where women aren't harassed, abused and assaulted. Women like sex too, we just prefer it to be with someone we choose to have sex with. Does eliding relatively minor harassments such as knee-grabbing or catcalling with violent assaults such as rape dilute the gravity of those crimes? No. For some, bum-pinching is no big deal. For others, such as Harvey Weinstein, rape is no big deal. Just as that arse is there for the mauling, that woman is there for the taking. By dismissing the smaller potatoes as bants, or to be expected, it promotes an air of entitlement, where women's bodies are commodities. And it might be small, but it's still a fucking potato. And yet, depressingly, various high-profile women journalists and public figures continue to take the hyssop approach to sex pests by minimising women's experiences. Sarah Vine, Julia Hartley Brewer, Katie Hopkins, the names aren't a surprise, being as they are fully signed up members of the I'm not a feminist because sometimes you just want to make your man a sandwich collective. The predictability is dull. That they think they've cracked a system that's blatantly using them is grimly funny, but the effectiveness, well, that's toxic. Meanwhile, the Daily Mail ran two pieces in a week tearing down women involved in sexual harassment accusations. Oh, yes. You could almost hear Andrew Pearce masturbating furiously as he laid into journalist Kate Maltby and MP Andrea Leadsom for the roles he believed they played in the downfall of Tory MPs Damien Green and Michael Fallon. Let's deal with them one at a time. Pearce was joined by Jan Moyer in the full-on character assassination of Maltby, who was slammed for being ambitious and forthright, and all of those things that are so highly praised if you happen to be born with a dick. Both relied heavily on the argument that Green was a family friend, something they believe negated the fact that he touched Maltby's knee when asking her out for a drink that his wife would apparently be totes cool with, rather than making it so very much worse. Agreed. Although, was it his hand touching her knee? Some friends of Green put forward the argument that it could have just been the tablecloth, because we all know how sexually predatory linen can be. <laughs> Later in the week, Ledson was harangued for her political ambition and her dyed hair, which are, let's face it, two of the least offensive things about a woman who thinks that if you haven't had children, you shouldn't have an opinion. 
Ledson was one of several people to talk out about Fallon, whose friends defended him by saying he turns into a Jekyll and Hyde character when he's pissed. In which case, Michael, stop using it as an excuse and seek some help. You had an interesting little experience on Twitter after this, didn't you? I did, because I tweeted that in response to the writer Will Black, who I believe to be a supporter of women, Mm -hmm. that uh, this argument that if a woman is drunk and she's assaulted when she's drunk, it's her fault. If a man is drunk and he assaults a woman when he's drunk, it's not his fault. It's just science, Hannah. And a four or five hour argument broke out on my timeline, which suggested that it is indeed women's fault if they get assaulted. To which I say, fuck off out of my timeline. Good call. Luckily, Theresa May didn't miss a trick when she picked her new chief whip. Realising that now more than ever was the time to break her deafening silence on women's issues, show support for her agenda and let a woman get cracking, the plum job went to Julian Smith. Great work. Good meeting, everyone. Mother of the house, Harriet Harman, whose own party did not escape accusations of varying degrees of sexual misconduct, dismissed claims by Tory MP Roger Gale that this was now a witch hunt. Because as we all know, witch hunts were a case of people with no power trying to take down people... Oh, wait, no, what? Gail, the twice-divorced MP who believes that letting gay people wed each other somehow undermines marriage, was one of several men to posit the idea that things that might have been acceptable 15 years ago were no longer acceptable now, as if 15 years ago wasn't somehow in the 21st century. Quick question, though. How do we even find actual witches now? Because around Halloween, I went out hunting for witches just so we could chat toads and hubble bubble and shit. And I just kept finding sexual predators <laughs> lurking under rocks. It was really frustrating. We need a new word for witch hunt for when it's actual witches. Any suggestions? Witch quest. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a, something you might find at Games Workshop, doesn't it? Yeah. I'm, I'm down with witch quest. <laughs> witch quest. Witch quest. Let's all go to Comic Con. Everyone's favourite rapper, Snoop Dogg. Or if you prefer, the motherfucking D-O-double-G. Uh, hit the headlines last week, thanks to his ongoing feud with Donald J. Trump. I just have a little Snoop Dogg question sure. before you carry on mm-hmm. about his feud with DJT. Yeah, is he Snoop Dogg again now? He, he was Snoop Lion for a while. To be Snoop Dogg again now. I presume he's taking a break from reggae, and okay. he's back on the hip hop. Is scene. that because the motherfucking L I O N doesn't scan as good as the O double G? No, I it's not great for that, is it? But no. I suppose it's a very different vibe, the uh the lion and the dog. I think he's made a mistake there because a lion is a big cat. Yeah. He'd have done better to be maybe I'll stop there. Like a Snoop Wolf. <laughs> yeah, that's a dog, isn't it? Yeah, Snoop Wolf. Probably has less significance to the Rastafarian culture perhaps. I don't not content with having appeared to shoot a Trump-esque clown in a music video earlier this year, Snoop's new album features artwork showing the corpse, in inverted commas, of DJT. The front cover of his 16th album, Make America Crip Again. <laughs> what does Crip mean? I believe it's, it's a, a gang, crip. isn't it? Isn't it the Crip Walk? Isn't it like a kind of... I mean, it's like from, the Lambeth Walk. It's, it's from the Bloods and the Crips, I yeah. think. Well, that's but what it's, I, but the, I think Crip Walk is kind of. Do you know, there's like a, a building dance. in Cambridge called the Crips Building. <laughs> and um, it just makes me laugh every time I walk past it. But obviously, because it's Cambridge, it's just full of white people. Are they woke white people, though? Oh, yeah. well, it's Cambridge, so yeah. Well, fine. I'm not sure what it is, but let's make America yeah, Crip let's again. Let's make America Crip again. He's, he did a fucking brilliant interview, actually, about where he explained. People want to make America great again. 
uh, and he said basically, but what you're at, you know, it's all about segregation and whatever. And actually, what I want to do is I, I want to make America quip again. I love him. Anyway, <laughs> honestly, I saw him at Glastonbury 2010. Best hour of my life. Also, his um, his cameo on uh, on King of the Hill is one of my favourite things they've ever done. And if you ever get a chance to see him doing a voiceover for that bit of, is it, what's that that nature programme with the with the lizard and the snakes? Planet Earth. Planet Earth. Yeah, that famous scene where the lizard, the iguana, is like running away from the snakes. If you ever get a chance to see Snoop Dogg uh, doing the commentary for that, I really do highly recommend it. He's also great in Starsky and Hutch, just saying. There's there's a lot of good things about the motherfucking D-O-double-G. Anyway, the front cover shows the rapper standing over a body on a slab, draped in an American flag, with a tag around the toe identifying it as Trump. Bodies do let out a lot of gases. Maybe that's what he's talking about. <laughs> There's been a big furore around it, but the image, in fact, is a take on the sleeve of the critically acclaimed 1991 Ice Cube album, Death Certificate, which, like a lot of hip-hop of that era, had a strong political theme. At the time of recording, DJT appeared to have shown uncharacteristic self-restraint on his Twitter account, being too busy making racist references to Senator Elizabeth Warren. Which you can't help but feel might have something to do with the dog father's apparent disdain for him in the first place. That Pocahontas stuff is just offensive. D-O-double-G, though, as as a man who famously grew up in, in Compton in, in the 80s, probably has pretty good reason to be worried about Donald Trump and the establishment at this Quite. moment in time. I, I would everyone venture. with a, any sort it, of right-thinking person has reason to be worried about Donald Trump. It does show that the, the completely typical thing that happens is that anyone who basically says something offensive and laughs it off as a joke is almost uniquely unable to take a joke themselves. And yeah. Donald Trump does fall into that category. Yeah. Quite Kathy Griffin when she, the American comedian who had that thing where she was holding Trump's head. And um, he was like, oh, you know, people have to see this. My my grandchildren have to see this, all of this. His own, my children, my children have to look at this. His own children have got on their Twitter feed pictures of them with animals they've killed, and yet they're too Mm. sensitive to see that a waxwork head their dad. It's bullshit. It's it's really annoying that... The, like people on Twitter went nuts about this. Right wing, you know, Trump supporters went absolutely nuts about this. This is an outrage. It's an absolute outrage. Whereas, yeah, like if it was, if I was getting pissed off about Top Gear, yeah. I'd be a snowflake. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, when Obama was in power, then there was like models of him being lynched and all sorts of mm. horrible stuff that was on Twitter. Yeah, but you're a snowflake if you if you're bothered about that. Fine, I'll be a snowflake. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. Well, over on Twitter, the world got a glimpse of what it was like for those people who live under the Heathrow flight path during the weeks that that Icelandic volcano grounded all planes when a departing employee shut down Donald J. Trump's Twitter account for 11 glorious minutes. Count them. Anyone wondering whether that raises concerns as to who can access the account of one of the most powerful men in the world might have their fears assuaged by remembering that no one is likely to do any more damage than Trump himself. Hashtag little rocket man. Hashtag sad. Hashtag big hands. You know you're the one. When you read out hashtag little rocket man, I thought there was maybe an Elton John medley coming up. Can we have that later, Hannah? Uh, Yeah. 
Awesome. And in lighter and brighter news, Lego is providing building blocks for future equality with its new set, Women of NASA, showing women rocking out of space with minifigures of computer scientist Margaret Hamilton, astronomer Nancy Grace Roman, and astronaut Sally Ride and Mae Jemison. The toy sold out in 24 hours. Ooh, yes, please. More. I saw an absolutely delightful story this week, actually. Jake Tapper is a CNN reporter in America. Yes. His daughter is a guide or whatever they get called in America, probably a brownie, the equivalent, because she's about 10. She's a Girl Scout. Girl Scout, mm. that's the word. And she said that she had noticed in class that when teachers asked a question, boys always put their hands up immediately, whether or not they actually knew what the answer to the question was. Yep. And girls never put their hand up, even if they did know what the answer was. And she talked to her parents about it, and her parents had said, you know, that's, you know, the patriarchy, et cetera, et cetera. And she wrote an open letter to, um, I think it was the New, New York, York Times, Times. And as a result, Girl Scouts of America are now doing a badge called Putting a Hand Up, in which little girls uh, will get a badge if they put their hand up in and, class. And they have to put their hand up, but they also have to get three other girls to start doing yeah. it as well. So they're passing on the joy. Because she was saying that I think the research that's been done showed that before a girl will put a hand up in class, they have to be 90% certain that they've got the right answer. Yeah. So... As we know, I used to be a civil servant. The way civil servants apply for jobs is competency-based. You have to meet, like, there's, like, six competencies and you have to give an example of, of all of them. And they said, on average, men would apply for a job if they thought they could meet one or two competencies. Women wouldn't apply unless they thought that they could meet every single competency. They need Absol- a badge. This is, like, the, f- the foundation of everything that is wrong, basically. This is like what we're seeing now, like the sexual harassment and sexual. This is where it starts. The premise that society is built on that men are inherently better or more entitled. That is where this shit starts. And although, like, I don't have a responsibility to stop a man from sexually assaulting me or, or, you know, dismissing me in a public, but you know, whatever. I don't have a responsibility to stop a man doing that, but we I think we all have a responsibility to root this out at its cause, which starts really, really fucking early. Agreed. More news as Jen changes the world. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we take a photograph of sexism in the media and give it an inappropriate caption. Yeah, because, you know, in a time when the media seems to have united against women, we know at least that we can count on the magazines that regularly take our cash to rush to our defence, right? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Wrong. This week, Tatler, which might want to rethink its catch line, the oldest and the best magazine in the world, apologised to Downton Abbey actress Daisy Lewis after it captioned a photograph of her, and I quote, As Daisy is quite small... You might be tricked into believing she's quiet. Lol. She isn't. This actress is loud, which makes her fun at parties and in bed, probably. And you know what? It's terrible that the fact that they use the word lol is not the worst thing about that (laughs) caption. Exactly. But, you know, this probably isn't the most upsetting sexualisation of a female that I've seen this week. Well, certainly not for me. As women's magazines continue to fall over themselves to sexualise 13-year-old Millie Bobby Brown star of Netflix Stranger Things. In Style did that thing where it was like, look how she's grown in a... And she, oh, they were talking about her fashion man. sense and the it's... fact that she seems to have more confidence. And she looked adorable in both pieces, but she's she is a 13-year-old kid. Play FM, which is a Spanish publication, 
describes her as one of the sexiest actresses in the world. What the fuck? She's 13 years old. Well, Emma Watson got similar stuff yeah. when she was little. Kid and Shipcar, Maisie Williams, Charlotte Church. I was going to say, Charlotte Church, the son, had a... Was it the sun or the star to... had a countdown countdown to her becoming sixteen and therefore legally fuckable? fuckable. Oh. I mean, it happened last year Rancid. with with Millie Bobby Brown. It did happen. I suppose it's naive to think that this year's season of Stranger Things has fallen at a point when everything else this happening in the world is happening in the world that you might think there would be a different approach. But no, it's like, wait, now she's 13. Let's start talking about, about what she's wearing and let's start using the word sexy to describe. I never want to see the word ch- a child and sex in the same sentence in a publication. Unless it's a you know a news story in which you, it's unavoidable. What in about which case um, you like, don't want? To I don't see want it, to right? see it, but yeah. it's an unfortunate consequence or that this has to happen. Them having sex resulted in the birth of a child. That yeah. is that is the exception, yeah. I think. Yeah. You know. But let's face it, she's our little girl in a cast of four little boys. Haven't seen any of them in magazine pieces. It is specifically because she's a girl, and it is repulsive. Well, jailbait is only ever a compliment when it's for a girl, right? Hi, we're here with comedian and bona fide American Taylor Glenn. Hello there. To talk about the anniversary of the election of Donald Trump. (sighs) So, tell me, Taylor, normally what happens when something terrible happens, you know, like Trump might be elected. People have this thing where they say, oh, this is going to be the worst thing that ever happens. And then after a few months, they just get Mm -hmm. on with life. Are you over it yet? Has the last year been no. worse? Thank you for inviting me to celebrate the anniversary, but it's a little bit like celebrating the anniversary of my first bout of diarrhea. <laughs> no, it hasn't gotten better, but it's it's this feels like a good trauma counseling session because I've definitely blocked out chunks of time. I can't I can't remember the whole chunk from him being elected and being inaugurated. I just went to sleep. What's it like watching it from abroad? Mm. That's a good question because when I when I go back to the states, it's very weird, it's very weird to actually touch down and be like, so is it is it really happening? It's not a fever dream because there really is a dissociation from watching it from over here, and there's kind of a relief. Except, thanks Brexit. <laughs> yeah, it's surreal. It's very surreal. There are still moments when I look at his face and I'll look at commentary and I'll just watch him speak, and I'm like, nah, nah. I have managed to achieve a year Netflix. without actually calling him. President Trump, which Have I've you? now actually said, yeah. But you said it so reluctantly it doesn't count. Yeah, generally I just call him Trump, or sometimes, for the sake of breaking up a sentence, the president, or sometimes 45. But I, I, I've not yet been able to bring myself to describe him as President Trump because mm. it's... I think my favourite description of Trump that you've used, my favourite tag that you've used, is fairly recent, and you refer to him as a marauding gibbon, and it made me very happy. Yeah. I feel that's a bit of a slur on gibbons, to be honest. (laughs) Uh, Is anyone surprised that he's actually made it through the first year? Well, we have till January. We do, because obviously (laughs) they have the the three-month handover. Cooling off period. Yeah. In which everyone goes, fuck! It gave us time to buy all of our drugs and booze. Yeah, so get yeah if that it. was insurance, you'd be able to back out of it yeah. now, wouldn't you? Yeah. But the thing is, I think that's a problem. So, yes, to a degree, I am surprised he's made it a year. But no, to a degree, because, you know, he won. And that means, as we were discussing elsewhere in the podcast, a lot of people 
are fucking idiots and they want him to be in. So he has got legitimacy, even though anyone in their right mind can see that he shouldn't have legitimacy. I, I saw the other day that his his approval figures um, had fallen to 39%. And I had always been led to believe that there was a hardcore of Republicans, which meant it was impossible to fall below 40%. In terms of, like, comparatively speaking, what does 39% mean? It's the lowest I've ever heard in my lifetime. Really? <laughs> Definitely. Okay. I mean, at the yeah. same time, it's still 39%. Yeah. What is wrong like, with those who people? Are, who are they? Yeah, and what can we do about them? Taylor. <laughs> Have you watched Ozark? They're the extras. No, it's um, that was mean towards people on Ozark. See, you're always insulting somebody a little bit too much. No, that's an incredibly low rating. And I also read that recently people were, were polled about how many think he should be impeached. And it was the highest number ever, which was 49%. And that's incredibly high to actually believe that your president should be impeached. I think that gives me the audacity of hope. I think part of the problem with when you're looking at Trump and you're looking for reasons to say that he's been terrible is because there has literally been a shit blizzard of reasons. And it's like we're in the crystal maze. You can only catch <laughs> so many reasons. Yes. I mean, I used to write the the uh, what the fuck just happened column and I had to stop writing it because sometimes there were up to a dozen things a day that were worthy of criticism of anyone, let alone someone who was the president yeah. of America. I think the perfect example, and it's probably my highlight of the Trump administration, Can is we the nine... highlight at the moment? Well, <laughs> I'm going to say highlight because, it, because it, it did feel like a highlight because actually I don't think there was any substantial damage to the world done during this period was the nine-day reign of Anthony Scaramucci, which was <laughs> like... That was a little blip of joy, it, wasn't it? It was, it was like... <laughs> Taylor will know what sweeps are, which is in a, a technical term in American television where everybody has, um, apparently, like, data is taken of how many people are watching a show at a certain time mm-hmm. every year. And so um, shows tend to go a bit crazy and have guest stars and try and appeal to as many people as possible during Sweeps Week. Therefore, their show gets highly rated. Therefore, they can ask for more advertising. Or they're more likely to be kept and not cancelled in the next schedule. And he did feel like a character that turns up during <laughs> Sweeps Week yeah. because there was, there was nothing about him that wasn't absolutely phenomenal. He was every Sopranos extra rolled into one, (laughs) male and female. He was just the most amazing character. But see, that little blip of joy only lasted... How long was it? I think it was nine Nine days. days. I'm pretty sure it's nine (laughs) days. And included the birth of his child and his divorce in a nine-day period. It's a busy week, isn't it? It is, in anybody's book. Is it difficult as a comedian to write jokes about someone who is a piece of satire in themselves? Oh, of course. I'm. I, by the way, I'm glad you explained what you meant by sweep because I thought you meant a cervical sweep, and I was <laughs> like, "What does this have to do with this garment? Sweeps week would sweep horrifying. Wow. Yeah, I just, I actually just watched um, Patton Oswalt's special on Netflix. I don't love know if you've Patton seen Oswald. it. I love. I have. So his latest special, it's it's great because he talks about he gets really emotional towards the end and talks about losing his wife, and it's like it's powerful. It's great stuff. But he starts out with this routine about everybody going like, oh, it's such a gift to comedians, Trump, it's great. And I'm going to misquote him, um, but it's brilliant. He's like, no, as a comedian, it's like, hey, there's a dog over there and he's shitting in the corner. I'm going to make a joke about that. And then by the time you've turned, 
you know, the dog then has a hat on and there's two other dogs and they're all shitting in a circle. And it was just such a great observation of exactly what you said. Like, it is just rapid fire nonsense. I mean, even just like reflecting today on what I was going to talk about, I'm like, oh, yeah, that happened. And you brought something up and I said, oh, yeah, that it's you cannot keep a shit storm in your head like that. You can't keep track of it. And I think that's very strategic. You know, I mean, we know it's strategic. Because the Republicans have snuck some stuff through, right? They have. So, yeah, I said that in a kind of rhetorical, but yeah, they have snuck some like dark shit through, particularly if you are a woman or a person of color. Well, it's that it is. It has managed to shine a light on some of the worst aspects of the Republican Party, and by that I mean Paul Ryan, um, (laughs) who is. Just a cunt. There's just there's no two ways about it. That just the cowardice of a man who's so concerned that either a he might lose his seat or b you know a woman might be able to get an abortion without having to listen to a sonogram that he is prepared to prop up a regime which is absolutely terrible. I think it's worrying because it's almost um oh there I think there was an article about this it doesn't matter fake news I'll just make it up yeah it was the Atlantic let's say it was the Atlantic (laughs) and it was just a piece about how we've all fallen for Trump's narcissism because in a way we collude with it because you can't help it it's so powerful I cannot watch I cannot not watch him on Twitter I cannot see what's next even if I think that he's trying to draw attention away from what I'm supposed to be looking at it's like wait Puerto Rico did we fix that oh great no no let's watch over here and that's exactly what's happening and in a way we're sort of brainwashed to the way that he operates you know because you are waiting for the next thing aren't you yeah fascination with the abominable absolutely I have a question because so I do sporty stuff and obviously all the NFL things that are going on at the moment, and he's sort of like waging a war mm. on all of that on Twitter and all of this bullshit. We are all down on one knee at the moment, yeah. literally. Yeah. Um, but and I keep saying, don't you have more important things to be doing than trolling Colin Kaepernick on on Twitter, right? And everyone says, oh, but it's just a deflection. He's just deflecting. He's just. A... Do you think he is that intelligent? Because I actually, I I can't believe that he is intelligent enough. Or that people are stupid enough. Like I can't, I can't believe. I don't know that's how smart actually... you have to be to create a smokescreen, though, and to divert people from what they could be focusing on. And actually, I think that is just part of his core strategy to divide and conquer. You know, because mm. he knows that if he focuses on that, he gets everybody. You know, that little nasty thirty-nine percent we just talked about. They get enraged and they say, "Look what's for our very institution of football is being taken down." By these black people who play it, you know? <laughs> it's actually a really... I know what you're saying, because it feels so clever, but is it? Is it just part of him going, like, what What can I say that can I that can rile up the racists? Like, in a way, it's just... Well, the world does, does seem to have taken a, a funny turn in recent years. A few years ago, a paper I was working on, we did a piece where we interviewed... I didn't interview him, but the paper ran it. A piece from uh, an academic who said that Trauma in the world always fell in the second decade of a century, that that was when the most social upheaval came. And he was talking about, you know, Waterloo, the Great War, etc., etc. 
And this was in about, I don't know, 2005, we did this piece, and we were like, yeah, fucking hell. Did you not notice September the 11th? You fucking loser. And now I look and I think, Jesus, like, mm-hmm. perhaps there is something bonkers that happens, because mm-hmm. it's not just America, it's not just us, look at Spain, like, it's just, we are in a funny period. There is a, 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 a process that is happening, and I don't think it's possible to look at America without looking with a wider context. But I do think that it's interesting, going back to history, probably the most exciting thing that happened to me this year is John Dean favourited a tweet of mine. Um, John Dean being uh, Richard Nixon's PR guy who actually went to prison for what he did. Uh, and when you see people like John Dean, and when you see people like Woodward and Bernstein and what they are saying from what they knew within the Nixon administration to what they can see that's happening with the Trump administration and they can see parallels. It gives me confidence that history suggests this cannot go on. I it like cannot. that that's making you smile. It is that, please, please <laughs> yeah. let this happen. Can America come out of this stronger? Is this a case of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger? I think this is an annoying response, but as you think it's I'm just answering your question with the question it depends what you mean by strong do you think because i think the empire has long fallen and i think this is the tail end of it and it depends if we can accept do you think that shining that's interesting shining a light on things like racism sexism Mm -hmm. blah 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 is this something that is this the moment of change you, you see, what Taylor just said fascinates yeah. me because what has always fascinated me about America and when people say America has no history, et cetera, et cetera, it's I think bullshit. they're talking out of yeah. their asses. America is quite possibly the most interesting social experiment that has ever happened. Yeah. And I wonder when that social experiment well, is, is going to new, come to an end. This is the new world order, isn't it? Yeah. Like, you guys, you're, you're kind of done. Yeah. Well, we're just... kind of done. Like, what... Who's next? I'm, I'm assuming you mean because America's... Yeah. forward in a yeah. nation where you don't have this illusion of the American dream, and then you talk about the people that are disenfranchised, that are angry, who went for this, who believed an outsider was the anti-elitist. And people them. talk about cities here being in trouble. Mm. America has a city that fell. Detroit just mm. went. Yeah. It's, it's staggering. The idea that that could now. happen here... Is, An actual collapse is insane. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That America is considered united is crazy. Just the the geography of it, the amount of space and differences and people it takes in. How long was that supposed to last where you have people making decisions it's in like a place Europe. that loads of people haven't even gone near and will never go near mm. a little go near a little bit. Yeah, like Europe in that whole like it's, it's so the, you know disparate. the side it it's a continent. But yeah. Europe was supposed to be inhabited. I mean, Jesus, man wasn't supposed to live in California. Yeah. If man was supposed to live there, there'd be a fucking water supply and there's not. And they're going deeper and deeper underground to find it. That is an environmental disaster waiting to And they're happen. all stealing water from each other, right? Yeah. Oh, they stole a... Back in 18-something, they stole a river. I applaud that kind of, like, innovation, though. We haven't even talked about guns, and we're not going to. Oh, but the God. fact that in the social experiment, we're Sorry. armed, the, the thing of guns, and will it make us stronger? And I think that there's no greater marker of our uh, kind of oh, individualism, mm. our paranoia, yeah. and our belief in the sort of my right Mm. to defend what's mine. Because if there was a moment for change Mm. with guns, that was Obama and that's... Surely that was then. 
Yeah, we're, gonna, that, gonna this is not going to happen under a <laughs> Trump administration. Taylor, it's been absolutely fascinating. We will get you in uh, for our impeachment coverage. Yay! <laughs> Let's hope <Please> so. Open. <laughs> Uh, uh. Question. I'm not answering that. Hello, this is Sarah Milliken, and you are listening to Sarah Milliken's Question Time. Uh, the question this week that I'm going to answer for you guys is from Rowan, and this is uh, off Twitter. Uh, it's a good question. The question is, where do all the socks go? Now, first of all, I can't not think of <laughs> Whitney Houston when I say that question. Not because that she was particularly known for losing socks. Or having socks. I suspect she was more of a pop sock. Or maybe a tight kind of girl. Oh, that sounds terrible. Tights. I should say tights. Maybe hold-ups with the big elastic lace at the top. She doesn't look like a sock girl. Anyway, but because the song, I keep thinking of Where do all the socks go? Like that. Uh, and, well, I suppose the next line is... Is it the next line is I hope they find their way home? Broken hearts? Who knows? Sock-wise, actually answering your question, we have a thing. So my husband exclusively wears black socks. I don't mean that he doesn't wear anything else. I mean he doesn't wear any other kind of socks. He's got one pair of Dalek socks, but most of them are plain black. So we never have... We never lose any. We probably do, but we don't know because they're not paid. He has a... This is a weird thing that he does. He has a drawer that is just loose socks. Or just on the loose it just they're not paid they're not bald they're just loose so he just picks out two socks so he could at any time have an uneven amount of socks in there i'm different because i don't want to get them mixed up with his i wear exclusively patterned socks and i regularly only have one stripey one hard hard pattern one dogs on one owls on and i just mix and match because i'm 42 and life's too fucking short for worrying about your fucking socks. So, Rowan, you know what? I'm going to take this off your shoulders. This has been a hell of a question. It's clearly been bothering you for a while, Flower. And I'm just going to say, don't worry about it. Either wear exclusively black ones and just put... Or maybe exclusively red ones. Do what you like. You're the age that you are. <laughs> I don't know what age you are. And... Then you'll never have an odd number or an even number. You'll just have a number. you just have some in a drawer. Or be like me and just regularly mismatch them. It was cool, like, in the 80s to wear, like, a green and a pink one. You know, when they were luminous. Do you remember when socks were luminous? So that you could be seen in the dark. That was what it was for. So, yeah, so I, I just say just wear what you like. Wear what you like. I much prefer socks over tights and over pop socks. I once, <laughs> I once had some pop socks that were fishnet. So they were like nearly sexy, but just to the knee. Thanks very much for your question. Have a good week, guys. If you'd like me to answer one of your questions, then tweet us at Standard Issue UK using the hashtag SMQT. Thank you. Standard Issue for all women. Hi, we're here today with poet and activist Lisa Lux. Hello. 11th November is coming soon, so it's Remembrance Day, the day that we all sit around generally and read war poetry. No. No? God, okay. God, no, no. I loved war poetry when I was at school and university, and for that I have Blackadder to thank. Absolutely. I did my dissertation on how the different characters in Blackadder represented the different World War One poets. I studied the war poets in college, and it's, it's actually the war poetry module that got me into university. 
I don't know, I just pulled it out of the bag with the war poetry stuff. But now I'm like, I, I don't remember... I remember nothing. Like, it amazes me how little I remember. I remember something, don't worry, I, I can... <laughs> I can share something on this, but yeah. <laughs> I started off really liking Wilfred Owen, and then Seafood Sassoon definitely became my favourite because he was just so brutal, I think, and it felt more... More like it was representative of how fucking awful living in the trenches and fighting that war must have been. Well, there was two sorts, wasn't there? There was the side of kind of sentimentalisation side of it, yeah. but then there was also the Dolce and decorum est yeah. horror of it. But um, obviously, um, we do tend to think of war poetry as just going first to the First World War. Poetry, war. Yeah. I've been watching Ken Burns' Vietnam documentary, and they were doing some really interesting poems that were written by soldiers in Vietnam, which is something that it never even considered to be had happened, a but obviously it allowed did. to write about other wars. Yeah, apparently what? so. But also, I mean, like, let's not forget that the 20th century, there wasn't a year without war. So, I mean, there's going to be so much poetry, even I'm not just talking about soldiers who were in the war, but reactionary poetry. So much poetry of the past, like, 100 plus years is in some way responding to war and conflict, right? It's in some way come out of conflict or as a response to it of some sort, whether it's, like, of the diaspora or, or what, you know? So I think it's interesting to, like, widen the lens on what war poetry actually is. It's not just the people who are on the front lines. It's not just the men who are on the front lines. You know, there are all these other really interesting voices that actually show how far spread war gets, you know? How it doesn't just affect those who are being used as cannon fodder, as they'd say, but it's actually affecting, like, everybody, mm-hmm. you know? Why do you think it's a go-to genre for people to talk about their experiences? I think over time, like, as when there's been political dissent, poetry rises, I feel like poets are, like, the people's politicians, obviously they can't change, like, laws, but they can change, like, the laws of your emotional landscape somewhat. And also they do so with urgency. So when you don't have time to research uh, everything that is happening with a particular war because it would just take so long and every war is so complicated that the deeper you get into it the more confused you get and the less you feel that you have any solution but poetry offers this really immediate solution in a way it's actually like a bullet itself it's just kind of fired out and it'll just hit you right in the gut and it can change you irrevocably so it's much more visceral yeah yeah an instant and has the ability perhaps to raise empathy and or at least compassion. I did study the war poetry of the First and Second World Wars because I think that's GCSE level or something like that. It's something that I think most people of my generation studied a little bit. If you look at like the First and Second World War, it seems so far away because obviously it didn't happen in our lifetimes. There's quite a disconnect between like the brutality of what actually happened, I think, for people now... And, it, and the war poetry is like one of the things that I remember hearing like as a 15-year-old or whatever and being like, oh, bloody hell, that sounds horrible, doesn't it? You know? <laughs> like It's kind of, I think that's one of the main things they use to sort of teach kids how horrific it actually was. There's also like in that is because you have this like language, I can use a, a sentence to describe something and what it'll conjure in each of the minds around this table will be a different image. Mm. And so there's all of that space for you to imagine all of your own biggest fears within the space of the language 
you know it's kind of just a signifier of horror but it leaves you to fall into the kind of like abyss of horror yourself you know whatever your abyss looks like is there a class element to it i might be wrong it occurred to me that most of the poets and i quite possibly am wrong on this but most of the first world war poets came from a, a middle class background but because they were also in the trenches they were having pretty much the same experience as people from working class backgrounds i think most of the ones that we know so brook Sassoon, Owen were very much middle class. Yeah. And they were officers yeah. rather than Tommies. Yeah. But obviously they were living hand to mouth with yeah. the Tommies. I'm not sure the experiences were quite the same. Uh, not but similar. Similar. Very similar yeah. yeah. You obviously know much more about modern war poetry than I certainly do, Lisa. So is that still an aspect of that? No, I don't think so. I think the 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 great thing about war poetry now if there is a great thing um about it is that you're hearing everybody's voice so where once you did hear the officers the the kind of male officers who were who were actually you know in 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 the, in the trenches or i guess it's also because war is different now like so war it feels that it's being waged differently like somewhat now and it is more all encompassing you know so what i know about like more i suppose if, is uh, the poetry that's coming out of the arab spring you know and whether that just be by people who are in the arab spring who are who, who have had to leave or people who were already spread out across the world but who were from there who are reflecting on it which i fall into that latter bracket you know like somebody whose heritage is from that area and so kind of looks upon it in in that way so you're kind of hearing this the the voices of of everybody kind of the people who are who are in there and the people who aren't and the ones who are really interesting because the poetry is becoming and has for the past kind of 50 years or so uh poetry has it has become lyrics for protest songs so it's caused a lot of trouble for poets the bigger your name becomes as a poet, the more likely you are to be put on house arrest or have to go into exile. Right. So, like, poet, to be a poet is to be a true rebel. You know, I'd use a, I should use a different word, actually, around the Arab Spring, but it's to, it's, you know, it's a, it's a revolutionary act to use poetry because you sacrifice yourself, you sacrifice your safety, you sacrifice the safety of your family to speak truth, whatever your truth may be. So, yeah, so there's, like, Mahmoud uh, Dawish, who's poem he, he's an incredible Palestinian poet he was in exile for most of his life but he wrote a poem called identity card and so he was put on house arrest it became the song of the kind of the front lines of the protest you know so I, I think that it Jansen's class just comes be about more about rage I guess uh, and there is an equal rage. I was actually just going to challenge myself straight away I mean first of all obviously you know the first rule of knowing anything is that we know nothing. So I'm not there, so I can't say whether actually there is a privilege to the people who are actually getting to escape. I think that there is perhaps a sense of privilege if you have the money and the means to escape and perhaps other people are being left there. So maybe their voices aren't being heard, so maybe I'm being unfair on some voices there by saying everybody's being heard, actually. I don't want to forget about there's always someone being silenced. We haven't heard everybody yet. Yeah, that's a good point. The war poetry that immediately springs to mind in the First World War poetry was also a really male experience. That's changed, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And it's really exciting, kind of, the, especially around the... Because with the, with the First World War, like, there were women poets. It's just that they weren't classed as war poets because the female experience wasn't seen as integral to the progression of the war. 
kitchen poets. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Domestic poets. Yeah. yeah. Despite the fact that they held everything together, it wasn't seen as important enough for their experience to be considered of value. So their poetry wasn't considered to be part of war poetry. There were women war poets, right? There were women war poets. It's just that we can't, like, reel their names off because we weren't taught about them in school. (laughs) But now, like, like, definitely more so. And, I mean, also, like, you know, the advent of the internet, ain't nobody waiting to get published anymore. If you've got something to say, you're done well, say it. And if people resonate with it, then it'll be heard, you know, in, in, in some way. So there is some, there are some like, yeah, incredible voices kind of rising from, from the Arab Spring, like female voices, and many are saying that it's the women's voices, the the, the women who are off writing the poetry, who are writing the poetry, because men are too busy causing trouble amongst each other and being exceedingly violent, and so there's a lot of women who 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 perhaps aren't party to that and who are actually writing of the experience and going out into the world, into their exile and seeding the stories and, uh, you know, translating the stories so that other people can understand them. But there isn't a front, is there, in modern warfare? I mean, civilians are involved in war now to the degree, I mean, way more than they ever were. I mean, obviously, during the Blitz, civilians were involved in the war, but especially when you look at places like the Middle East, we look at drone strikes and things, it's it's a lot more easier for a civilian to be caught in the day-to-day of warfare mm. than perhaps it, it ever was before. So their experiences are as valid. Because they've become so involved in it, because their streets are the battleground, it means that they that, that is the front line, you know, it's all being waged in, in suburban territory, it's all being waged in on their on their streets. And yeah, you know, okay, so I understand what you're saying about the Blitz um, before, but I think that they're because it's a lot of civil because it's civil wars that, that are happening. So all these protests that began as peaceful protests, there's a lot of people who have turned to violence. A lot of people who are part part of the peaceful protests who are, feel they've had no choice but to turn to violence because the safest place is behind a, a weapon. It's the safest place you can find is behind your own weapon. You know, otherwise you're just you're just sitting a sitting duck, really, unless you're going to escape. So that's just to kind of argue your point that perhaps the civilians are actually having to become the yeah. The foot soldiers to whatever it is they believe in, that kind of scramble for, for their tribe and fight with it. Not everybody, but... And some of the most moving bits of First World War poetry mm. for me was when, say, Sassoon or Owen was up against a German soldier and that recognition that this is another human being, which, of course, they were taught to forget in order to be killing machines and to just get on with fighting for their country. On both sides, in the scenarios that we have today... It isn't this sort of faceless enemy. It's people who used to be your neighbours and your friends and your family. There's a, a poet called Suhair uh, Hamad, and she's based in Brooklyn, but she's, her roots are Palestinian, and she was born in Jordan. And she wrote a poem after 9-11, and it's called First Writing Since. In that, she writes about what it was to be an Arab woman in America in the week after in, in New York, you know, in in the week after 9-11, and also how it felt having her brothers there who are just constantly being assumed that, that it was their fault. Like, you know, did you know the people who did this? You know, like that kind of attitude. Whereas before, it, we perhaps wouldn't have heard of the opposition, the pe- you know, not that, not that she's the opposition, obviously, the Arab, not saying the opposition, but, I mean, the people who are seen as enemy, yeah. Yeah. The, who the propaganda tell you are enemy. You don't get to hear their their voices, whereas she's saying, like, actually, hello, like, I'm the one who was there to hold, 
to like uh, to like hug women in the street and like I'm of course I'm, a, I'm an American woman but of course I'm seen as uh, a part of the opposition because you can't hide my skin color and and, and the fact that I'm an I'm an Arab in my name yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know it's poetry does yeah. that though, doesn't it it puts you in someone's shoes in a way that even literature can't always yeah. do because it's it's first person and when you read poetry I like poetry being read to me preferably by the person who's written it I think that to me is the best sort of poetry experience but when you read it and obviously there's people who aren't alive to read their poetry to me damn them um, you read it in your voice it's the only voice you've got so you're immediately in someone else's shoes is that about right? Oh. Poet? Poet? Yeah. <laughs> no I mean I, I definitely agree that's I, I mean I, I always think it's better read by somebody else because or if it's not by the poet themselves than by an actor somebody who's a bit more trained to deliver lines than I am interestingly I found only in the past 24 hours that I disagree. Oh, really? Unless it's being read by the poet. But I have, like, a really hard time listening to poetry. <gasps> I know. Sack me from my job. News just did. I find such intimacy with a page because I can reread a line many, many times until I get it or don't, or, or don't get it yeah. or until I've kind of, like, played with it, until I've kind of, like, made it my own. I think there's something in that as well that like when it's poetry on a page because there's often so much room for interpretation you're not standing in their shoes you're still kind of one foot in your own so you're kind of like reflecting your own understandings of things into their imagery or, or whatever I think that's what makes you so close to them it's kind of like this amalgamation of you as a person with 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 their language of their experience and that's what kind of like makes you kind of completely married to the person who who writes the piece that you feel close to. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. because I did have an argument recently with someone about Robert Frost, The Lockless Store, because they seemed to think it wasn't about me, and it very clearly is about <laughs> me. I don't know what they're talking about. but I think as well, with another... The Jabberwocky's yeah. about me, actually. Uh, another another poet that, that talks about war briefly, and it's one of my favourite poems, but it's a poem that he became really ashamed of in his later life is W.H. Orton's Spain which he went back in his later life and thought oh I was really naive I was really it's really melodramatic I really do. I think it's amazing I think it shows all of his it's about the Spanish Civil War and it's about all of the passion that he felt for which a lot of young men felt for at that time well let's get in there let's go and help the Spanish and yet they now I need him again <laughs> exactly exactly but now or not now, but later in his life, he was he he thought about it differently. And after I read that he thought about it differently, it made me really sad because I thought that's it's one of the things that was one of the war poems that made me really interested in war poetry. Oh, interesting. Oh, sorry. No, no, you you're the expert. You go. No, no, this isn't so much an ex, expert uh, response to that. It's a personal response to that, but from from the other side. So. In March 2016, I was commissioned to write a poem about Donald Trump, the fear of Donald Trump coming into power uh, by an American magazine. So yeah, American. thank God that's not happened. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, I don't have to bomb that away. Uh, <laughs> I wrote this piece that at the time was very inspired by kind of uh, hope of, uh, of like a kind of uprising, you know, and a hope of like a pushback. And it was called Be Not Afraid of the Fool. And it was all about like, you know, uh, we are many and uh, in, our, in our manyness, we are strong. We're such a big like body mass of, of humanity when, when we all join together. So we're strong and we rise, you know. And, um, and I used to perform it and people uh, felt... 
obviously a lot of like, oh, phew, not somebody like kind of panicking about it. It's like, yeah, I can get behind this. And they had this whole renewed hope. And then in the past uh, like five months or so, I've had to like say, because it was part of a show that I was doing as well. And I had to just stop at that part and say, I'd usually do the Trump one here. And sometimes I'd return audiences waiting for that one. And I'd say, I'm I'm afraid I, I, I can't stand here and say it to you anymore. I don't, I don't believe in it anymore. I don't believe that that is a style of revolution that I can proudly talk about, knowing what revolution uprising has wound up like. But I guess in, the in flip side areas. of in the many we are strong is also in some of the other many we are fucking idiots. <laughs> and it's just that that's what's won. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because like that, that like for want of a better phrase, hive mind can be really powerful and I think protest and and poetry and words and language are incredibly strong so don't you <laughs> dare not believe in your poem anymore because it was from that moment in time and you absolutely believed it and that passion's really important but a lot of people are absolute jebbins and they that's also the problem, get an equal it? say it's the, it's, that's, the, that's the problem is that they <laughs> the get an equal say that is the problem uh, no, it was, it was, well I mean There's that no is the problem yeah. as far as I'm concerned but anyway uh, that's, it's time for my um, benign dictatorship <laughs> uh, please vote now like a strictly come dancing voting system but only giving you Jen's number that's it you yeah. can only vote oh, for God. Jen <laughs> vote for me. So, if, so if you were going to recommend some, some poets for our readers to, to get involved with uh, who would you suggest Maram um, uh, Masri, who is a Syrian poet in exile in Paris who writes beautifully about that and um, and he's one of these celebrated voices of, of women's voices coming coming from uh, from war and uh, Mahmoud Dawish definitely recommend uh, reading the work of Mahmoud Dawish. You'll want to reread it many times. And that's a Palestinian poet that I mentioned. Have you got a book of his stuff in front I of you? I have right actually. Now? Yeah, I've been reading it on, in my in my Uber. <laughs> yeah, I come back to this book again and again actually, just to check myself and just remember that there's still a lot of work to do to continue <laughs> improving my craft. And this book is called Sand. And I think at the time it was the only like translation in English and I think it's probably the best English translation if there are others now it's translated by Rana Kabani he talks about this being in exile I can read you a couple of little excerpts of this actually that kind of was strike struck me in my taxi this morning like tiny little bits because his poems are quite, lo- are quite long or too long you know for podcast we called out wheat the echo came back war we called out home the echo came back war We called out Jaffa, the echo came back war. And from that day on, we measured skies with chains. Wow. You have a connection to the Middle East, don't you, that's quite a personal connection? Yes, I do. So I'm half Syrian. And actually, I'm due to become a war poet myself <laughs> because very shortly I'm, I'm actually travelling to the Middle East to volunteer in Lebanon with children and teenagers of the Syrian uh, kind of civil war who are refugees, who are finding refuge in Shatila. And so I'm going to be working with them, kind of teaching them arts and language because I believe that hopefully then they can write poetry and be heard. I ask any of like my Syrian friends, like, what can I do as a storyteller? And they said, people need to know the truth. So you go, I'm going to go and try and do my part um, for equipping them with truth and also just understanding my role in it. I'm not going over there thinking that I know 
how I can help. I'm going over there with an idea and uh, hopefully I can also be told by them like how I can be of use. And I also wish to translate, um, and I mean from uh, storytelling into poetry, uh, the voices of others who are the voices who have been silenced and be able to bring those back to the West, translate it into a way that people perhaps in the West can maybe understand better uh, what is happening. And also, I guess, translate it through the mill of myself, which is this half Syrian body living in, in the Western comfort. And also, uh, whilst I'm there, meeting with like such powerful women as the woman who is the director of the Institute of Women's Studies in the Arab world, which is at the Lebanese American University. And they do, they don't just offer like masters in education. They're like a school of activism as well. So they're like real hands-on activism. And it's like that intersection between like education and activism, which is just like, there's no better way to be applying like what you learn straight away, right? Yeah. Your face just lit up. It was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm really, really excited about that. And the, and the woman who... Um, who is the director, Lina Birafer. She uh, has worked all over the world with women who are affected by war because, you know, the war comes in and rages through a town and it's women's bodies are also entered and raged at war with too, mm-hmm. are also broken into. She works with those women who have been affected by war in that, in that way, you know, and she's a really inspiring woman. And you need some. I'm rubbing. I'm doing the international language for bunts. Yeah. I'm rubbing my fingers together. You've got a crowdfunder, is that right? I do have a crowdfunder, actually. Yeah. Thank you for mentioning that. Yeah, I do. I have a crowdfunder because it's going to obviously cost to get there and I'm be staying in dorms there, but I've still got to pay for that, of course. I am uh, raising money and uh, for that trip and kind of, you know, I'm a DIY artist, so really, like, the more I can I can raise from those whose uh, cups are over, uh, <laughs> then uh, I can I can stay there for longer and really commit my time to it. So, yeah, if anybody would, would like to uh, participate in, in that initiative but obviously perhaps doesn't have the time themselves, you can buy my time. <laughs> and yeah. how do we find that? How do yeah. we get involved? So that's on GoFundMe and it's also the pinned tweet on my Twitter if that's a useful way to find it. And your Twitter handle is? Lisa Lux underscore... Because someone... Beat me to Lisa Lux. There's, There's another, another Lisa, Lisa Lux. Lux. There's another Lisa Lux. How fucking dare they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like another Lisa Lux. But there's another Lisa Lux. <laughs> you play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, our weekly bolero on the ice rink of women's sports. Speaking of which, I am mega excited about the return of Dancing on Ice. This is not really sports related. It's not properly sports, is it? But, you know, it's got a sporty basis. I am so glad we decided, nah, 30 years out of one gold medal. It's not enough. It's not enough, Torvald Dean. You guys deserve to dine out on this for even longer. I can't wait. Anyway. Moving swiftly on, the big story in sport this week was a growing row around allegations about classification rigging in disability sport. Leading female Paralympians were defending themselves last week as it was alleged that disabilities of Paralympic athletes had been misrepresented in a bid to claim more gold medals. Paralympic legend Tani Gray-Thompson told a parliamentary hearing there have been quite a lot of those recently in sports, which is worrying, but I'll, I'll get on to that. 
Tanny Gray-Thompson told a parliamentary hearing that team managers, coaches and even some governing bodies had been complicit in this. So it's basically misrepresenting people with disabilities in a bid to get different classifications so that you'd be essentially eligible for a classification that you were maybe more... was maybe wrong and it would give you an advantage, basically. So, in fact, some athletes, she claimed, had actually been threatened with deselection if they spoke out about the issue. One of the athletes defending themselves is Hannah Cockcroft, who recently won the Times Disability Sportswoman of the Year Award. Classification campaigner Michael Breen claims that the huge margin by which Cockcroft won titles between 100 to 800 metres events is evidence that she should have been in a different classification. So basically he means because over such varying distances because she won by such a big margin, it's a bit iffy. But um, I'd like to introduce you to a man called Mo Farah, Michael. Cockcroft denies the allegations. Some of the accusations that are being made here and the methods used to obtain these different classifications are frankly pretty dark. I think what we're seeing here is what we've seen with so many other sporting scandals of late, like women's football, for example. Growing interest and investment makes the sport riper for greater scrutiny, which I think is a good thing, but also corruption. And I think that this is a story that is going to run and run. And while we're on the subject of sporting scandals. The Football Association's Martin Glenn reminded me once more why I think he's a waste of space, as he gave an interview with BBC Sport this week. Glenn responded to criticisms of England and Wales' governing body for football by saying, football needs to change. We need to make it more in tune with 21st century society. So by that I assume he means not racist, sexist and diminished in monetary value although, oh, hang on, guys, (laughs) rather than masked by a Snapchat filter and surgically enhanced pout. Glenn went on to say that the FA are working with UK Sport because this issue is something a lot of other sports are facing to implement a new grievance and whistleblowing procedure, which, again, I assume won't simply offer large sums of cold hard cash to anyone who makes a complaint. Also, Martin, we're not talking about other sports, are we? The good news is he reckons that the new procedure will be in place by Christmas, so it will no doubt have been subjected to really, really thorough and rigorous scrutiny in that two-month period of conception and implementation. Lovely stuff. But it's okay because Glenn says, graciously, he reckoned he was actually part of the solution rather than the problem. Which, from a purely chronological perspective, I'm going to have to take issue with. I'm going to try and keep this clean so I won't call Glenn a bumbling fuck weasel, but it is, once again, a wholly inadequate response which, once again, fails to shoulder any responsibility for the problems that have gone down in women's football recently. If you want a bit more background on that, I suggest you listen to last week's podzine in which I do wang on about it a little bit. As the chief exec of the FA, you are football, Martin, and I'll say it again, Football does have its problems, but these are clearly top-down. And I think you need to change if football's going to change. Finally, this week, some good news, because we like to end on a high. The BBC announced this week its plans to show an extra 1,000 hours of live sport a year online via the iPlayer and the BBC Sport website. Those sports that will be seeing increased coverage are Women's Super League football, the British Basketball League. Are you listening, UK Sport? Are you listening to that? Basketball, mate. Anyway, and uh, and wheelchair tennis, which is excellent news, and I applaud them. 
as always, I'm very interested to hear your views on any of these issues, any of these stories, or if you've got a story or a sport you'd like me to cover, give me a shout on the Twitter. I am at InspiraGen. More sportsy stuff next week. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disney. Dunleavy, what Disney did you did this week? This week, I watched Tangled. Tangled is 2010, so obviously I've never seen it before. It tells the story, no way, a story of she of the long hair with no split ends. The lead character is played by Mandy Moore, who I only know one thing about, and that's that she was briefly married to Ryan Adams. Didn't know that about her. Okay, do you know anything else about her? Uh, she's a. Didn't she start as like a teen singer kind Is of she? thing? I think, yeah. Possibly. Is she like a Disney kit? I don't know if she's like a mouseketeer or anything like that. A mouseketeer. Yeah, well, Miley Cyrus wasn't a mouseketeer, was she? But like Britney, Ryan Gosling, Justin, Justin Timberlake. She was like a child star, right. I think. And like I say, she must be wildly optimistic because she got married to Ryan Adams. <laughs> Oh, don't get me wrong, I love, but not, listen, listen to his music, and that's a man that's not, oh, not yeah. going to, to sustain a long and happy marriage. He, he did. did an album where he, com- he covered like an entire Taylor Swift album, like did, every yeah. song of it. I quite liked his version of Bad Blood, but yeah, if you listen to that, you know he's not a man who's going to sustain a happy. So why is it not called Rapunzel, I hear you ask? Because Disney decided it needed a gender-neutral name because films with girls' names in the title aren't appealing to boys, apparently. So make of that what you will. It is kind of true, just because, like, science has proven it. And by science, I did do a little screwed-up face. But in the same way that men, when they've done surveys, don't read fiction written by women, Mm. or a lot of men don't read fiction by women. Obviously, it's always a generalisation. And when I worked at the theatre in the pantomimes, we would have, or it would be classed as a pink or a blue pantomime because it would either be a boys or a girl pantomime and it's like so Aladdin is a boys pantomime mm. Sleeping Beauty is a girls pantomime Have you women seen it? Have you women Have seen you it? Women, uh, I watched it yesterday in preparation for this it was the first time I'd seen it I have not seen it but I do have a Tangle teaser is, Does that count? No because her hair never gets tangled Yeah it's it? a bit stupid Apparently at the time lots of people were like making jokes about Little Mermaid should be called Beached, in that sense. (laughs) (laughs) Is that to do with the plot? No. No. Her hair never gets tangled at any point. I was quite convoluted. My nan, when when she was alive, she was completely obsessed. If you had things hanging off you, like scarves and stuff, she always used to tell us this story about Isadora Duncan. Yeah. And I was waiting for that to happen. I was waiting for her to be tangled in something. (laughs) For her neck to break. Yeah. Not very Disney, though. Isadora Duncan caught a scarf in a car door. Yeah. And it broke her neck. Yeah. Like killed her. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is according to my nan, and she's no, not this necessarily is a the real. Source of. That's the thing that is it? did happen. Yeah, she's that never would tangled. that would be a bit like the Bambi thing, like when they wanted just to called like, it shot. When they wanted to like burn, burn the dude. They were to set people on fire. Yeah. yeah, like that would be a really, really brutal way yeah. of uh, of <laughs> a very a really, really brutal. short Disney film. Yeah, a woman with long hair gets stuck in car door. At the end. Yeah, yeah. I found the whole concept of her hair just gross. 
to yeah. be honest. Like, How just long gross. is it? Is it like super long? Oh, it's, it's like crazy. It's preposterous. So. Okay. Yeah. Well, in that yeah. case, without further ado, did you like it? Okay, so this is what happened. I watched about 10 minutes of it, and then I got the overwhelming desire to sort out all the crap under the bed in my spare bedroom. And I obviously don't mean literal crap, although it did turn out to be the mother load for Hidden Piles of Cat's Egg. Oh, Joan. And when I'd finished doing that, I'd found this attachment for a hover that I owned like two cats ago, and I fashioned a small brush out of it, and then I cleaned out all under the keys of my laptop which is actually more avoidance behaviour than I showed when I had to write an essay at university. So that might be a gauge of how much I enjoyed it. You did watch the rest of it. I though, did, right? I did actually. I didn't sort in the stone it. I did finish watching it. And I have to say, it did actually get better. Okay. It's not brilliant by any stretch of the imagination. And I'm pretty sure this week is week 20 in Dunleavy Does Disney. So I'm definitely suffering from... Disney fatigue. Your mouse ears are wilting. This has been like three months, four months maybe, of watching Disney films once a week. So the plot is, there's a flower in the forest which has magical powers and there's this wizened old woman who is using its life force to stay powerful and young, much like Julia Hartley Brewer uses the misery of other women to stay in the news. Meanwhile, the Queen is pregnant and she's sick So minions are sent into the forest to find a cure and they nick the flower and heal the queen. But as a consequence, Rapunzel, the baby that she was pregnant with, is born with magic hair. You heard me. Magic hair. And loads fucking of it for a newborn child. Can you imagine the indigestion the queen must have had? Maybe that's what she was called out. They sent them out. Perhaps she was just suffering from really, really bad indigestion. She just wanted some rennies. Yeah, because she was having a hairy baby. Yeah, really, really hairy baby. Yeah. Like, more hair than I have on my head, but, like, <laughs> newborn. So, the witch tries to steal the baby's locks. Who's the witch? The, it's the old the wizard woman. woman. Let's oh, call yeah. her the witch, whatever okay. she is. Sure. She's a witch. She tries to steal the baby's locks, but she discovers that when she cuts the hair... The power dies, and even worse than that, horror of horrors, the beautiful glowing blonde hair turns brown. Yeah. What? Jen's looking really chuffed with herself. Well, yeah. Didn't want to glad say anything. This is the fairy tale. Yeah. So, what happens? She steals the entire princess. You can't steal the hair, you take the baby. Makes sense. I have a quick question. Yes. What magical powers does the hair have? Ah, uh, well, we'll get to that one. oh, sorry. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, basically, it glows when she sings and it heals. And it stops ageing. Yeah. Kind of... I loved your priorities in that. You were like, which is the most important? It glows when she sings. That's exciting. Well, that's kind of the order mm. that you learn these, oh, okay. these facts in. Anyway, they go off to live in a big tall tower and the king and the queen are sad. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Oh, so, leap forward 18 years, Rapunzel's being raised by the now ever youthful witch, who she thinks is her mother. And she's wishing she can escape, which is about... As Disney by numbers as a plot gets. Oh, I'm so sorry. I, have, I haven't seen this, but I have another question. The hair, the magical hair that can prevent ageing or stops ageing, what, do you have to rub yourself on it, just be in its presence? She just wraps it around you. So she's been wrapping it around the old wizened woman? No, I think the old wizened woman strokes the hair. Maybe that's the tangled thing. If oh. you become entangled in her hair yeah, and she sings... Oh, does Good she have times. to sing for the magical powers? She, she yeah. has to sing for the glowing, yeah. And the glowing is the magic and then mm. people it get is, younger. To be fair, it is kind of a bit 
confused and is not it sketchy? really particularly well explained. Sorry or maybe it's because I wasn't being that interested. Well, I don't no, think they tell you until quite late yeah. on in the day. Like, you know her hair is like doing the thing for the old witch lady making her young and that. And you know that, like, she sings and it... No, you don't know until quite late no. on. She's like, oh, by the way, I've got magical hair. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So into her life crashes the outlaw Flynn Ryder, who looks a bit arpats. It's quite a fit. And who she persuades to take her to the Festival of the Lanterns, which is an event where everybody lets off a Chinese lantern in the sky to remember the lost princess. Now, if you're thinking Flynn Ryder sounds a bit like the name of a former teen star arrested for vagrancy or a recurring character in Buffy, you'd be right. I think he was in Greece too. But this is something that's actually dealt with later in the story, so it's not quite as terrible as it sounds, okay. which is one of the ways this film does subvert some Disney expectations with the emphasis on the word some. Because it was absolutely lauded. I haven't seen it, but it was like... People rate it above Frozen as being like, oh, it's quite feministy and like it. Well, is... oh, well, I suppose she's feminist. She's she's I got was, her own agency. Yeah. She, yeah, she has her own agency. She's not like totally insane. Do... Anyway, they go off on an adventure together, and the witch pursues, and it all ends with two classic Disney tropes: someone crying over a dead body, which comes back to life, and the baddie having a long drop death. So, the first thing to say, and this is why it's been praised, I think, is that the animation is absolutely, like, spectacular. It's really good. There's an impromptu Kaylee, which is probably the best animated thing I've seen so far in a Disney film. It is amazing, so huge round of applause for that. And in parts, it's, like, seriously action-packed. One scene is so reminiscent of Raiders of the Lost Ark that they actually put a little nod to Raiders of the Lost Ark in which he, they're running, something drops down through a doorway, and he sticks his hand underneath and grabs the thing, which would be the hat in Rage of the Lost Ark. But in this case, it's a frying pan. That's her weapon of choice, by it the way. It is her weapon of choice. Um, it's clearly really influenced by Disney and Pixar films in that it's funny. I say funny. It tries to be funny, although for the most part it doesn't actually succeed partly because the humour is pitched at children and in Pixar films the humour is quite often pitched at adults, yes. I thought there was, there were, well not I thought, there were some moments that I lolled at. There okay, is a mime actually, artist in it that is actually brilliant. really funny. Because the animation's so good and their their facial expressions are like proper, like a human's. Uh, there's a bit like where she's chatting to him and she sort of says stuff like, oh yeah, by the way I've got like, magic hair that glows when I sing and he's like sorry what now you can't see what face I'm I'm making but he does a proper like huh yeah. and it and it just translates really well because the animation's so good yeah I did think that a lot of it wasn't that funny I did speak to one of my spies that exist in the world of children who's a 12 year old boy and I asked him what he thought of Tangled and he said is that the one with the frying pan? And then did a really melodramatic eye roll, which was actually funnier than anything that I saw in this film. If you t- take the character of the witch, who has a name, but I, and I watched it only yesterday, and I already can't remember what the name I is. So that will show how much this film made me care. She's supposed to be wisecracking and smart, and she does that thing where she has both sides of the conversation, even if there's actually somebody else in the conversation. Which reminds me a lot of the fairy godmother in Shrek 2. 
I haven't seen Shrek 2. Well, you should. I can't you think. Should. Oh, no, I know. However, you. however, the valuable point here is the fairy oh, godmother in Shrek 2 is played by Jennifer Saunders. I have yeah. And Jennifer Saunders is fucking amazing. And this character is not played by someone who has the comedy chops of Jennifer Saunders. So a lot of it comes across as just really irritating. And similarly, a lot of the the humour, and I, I use that in inverted commas, sounds like a lot of stage school kids just like spitballing something for the local panto. And the songs are really insipid, except the one at the tavern, which is basically the poor man's Gaston yeah. song from... from uh, Beauty and the Beast. I fucking love that song. Um, there's a couple of animal sidekicks. You'll like them. Point at me, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Who's a chameleon? Will I fancy any of them? No. no. Oh. Um, the chameleon, to be honest, might as well not be there. But there is a horse called Maximus. He starts off being on a different side to the heroes, but eventually becomes an ally, and he's actually probably the best thing in the film. He's pretty good. Is he say. a talking horse? No. no. He does also, it all like with his frozen face. With the, yeah. with the moose. Yeah. No, the reindeer. An animal, but he knows shit. Yeah, he does okay. it all with his face. It's very good. Yeah. He is good. A lot of the dialogue is proper, like, straight up cheesy Disney. The bit where it goes a bit Dawson's Creek, to be yeah. honest. <laughs> and the day new mom, where she has a flashback and remembers that she's the lost princess, isn't really explained particularly well. I didn't... It's bullshit. They have fully shoehorned that in. Like, there's no way she's suddenly gone, but hang on a minute... How could she possibly have it was known? Something to do with the flag, with some sounds. I know it didn't. It it's didn't really get it to me. And don't even get me started on the implications of having hair longer than Diana's wedding train. I have shit in my hair all the time, and my hair isn't dragging on the ground. Right now, I'm looking at Hannah, and there's a toaster, <laughs> there's six beetles, and the horse Maximus from the film <laughs> yeah. Tangled in Hannah's hair. Exactly. On the other hand, in terms of characterisation of both the female and the male leads, it's light years away from. Early Disney. So, yeah, I know this is becoming a bit of a trend, but I am actually undecided as to whether I liked it or not. So let's say it was okay, but I'll probably never watch it again. Jen? Well, like I said, there were bits where I proper lulled. The mime artist being one of them and the face expressions. Who knew that mime could be funny? People have been trying to make that shit exactly. funny. Oh, ages. no, it's well good. It's very good. Okay. That's really, like, the shining example of the Is best. Is the take face of Disney? <laughs> There's a bit oh. where he that some guards are running towards him mm. and he manages to hold them off by doing the, the fake wall bit. Everyone's favourite mime. And he's, like, a massive bruiser as well. Yeah. So I just the point, point out that is... Hannah is miming for the podcast. Really badly as well. I thought there was a wall. I thought you were building an actual I wall. I was opening a cupboard. No, it's Jenny and Claire's in the room, guys. Mostly, I thought it was dull as fuck. If I'm honest, I was able to work on other things the whole way through. Yeah. Are we to take from Jen's description and your description, Hannah, that cleaning under your spare room bed is not a euphemism? Oh, God, yeah, definitely. Seriously, I was like knuckle deep in catsick. Wow. You've met Joan. I've met Joan. She I started to wonder that Joan's either got a drink problem or she's pregnant and she doesn't want to tell me because she does a lot of puking. <laughs> and she's quite chubby she in comparison is. to your other cat, Peggy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So... You've kind of said that you're undecided, but I am still going to force out a score. I'm going to squeeze out a score like Joan puking at midnight. Oh, I'm going to give it three. Three Mm. what? Three exhausted hairdryers out of five. The only thing I really thought about at any length was, like, how much it must hurt. Like, 
having everyone climb in your hair all oh, the time. Oh, because she uses it like as it is like it becomes her like superpower. It's like a pulley to get yeah. people up in the tower. Yeah, you know? yeah. But That's also like yeah, no. Also, she but, like like when she tries, she like uses it as a lasso mm. and like drags people over as if in any way none of that would be painful to her scalp. Yeah. Also, think. Spoiler alert! Um, at the end. He does. Uh, oh, so this is interesting. He nearly dies, right? And yeah. uh, and there's blood. You see blood. Yeah, yeah, which is new, I think. For well, it's Disney. usually on the cutting room floor in a Disney film. Yeah, yeah. but you see see a bit of blood, and um, yeah. So he he like basically in a bid to save her from. Um, from being like beholden to this silly witch lady forever and ever. Witchy McYoung now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> just like fucking lops her hair off as she goes to save him, which means that he, in theory, sort of potentially, well, he jeopardises himself, but he does it, you know, for her to make her life better because now she's got nothing to offer the witch, so she's sort of free. Um, but the thing, the, the thing that uh, I thought about this was how... She had a very neat, choppy bob afterwards. He oh, just, I thought that, because yeah. he did it with a bit of broken mirror. Yeah, he just goes, whoop, off like the ponytail, and she ends up with like just a lovely, choppy bob. Is that not how you guys get your hair cut? Because I have just been like smashing mirrors and doing... No? Well, look, no, you give it a go, because it works out very well for her, although her hair is brown at the end of it. Which is obviously repulsive. Yeah. Stop. It's, a, it's obscenely long. It's an hour and 40 minutes. No, I meant her hair. Um, Yeah, the film's also. But but the film is obscenely long because I have a thing that I think there's too many films that are longer than an hour and a half. Oh my God, we're getting a Mark Mode rant here from Jen. I just think, like, you've you've got to be. I think for a film to be longer than an hour and a half, it has to be quite good to carry that off. Otherwise, you know. I think oh, yeah. the people making the films longer than an hour and a half, they genuinely think that they're quite good, though, Jen. They don't yeah, but for Disney, that's for kids as well. So also, you know, I'm thinking most of them should, in theory, have a shorter attention span than me. I have a little theory about Disney films, because you were saying it's really beautifully animated. So I wanted to know, are there any particular bits? Because my theory is, and you can like kind of agree or deny this, that they work out. Denied. How... Oh, thanks, Hannah. They work out how to animate something like with Frozen. The stuff on the ice is amazing, and the Northern Lights. And so they work out how to animate something, and then they go, "How do we build a story around this?" The lanterns are pretty good, aren't they? Like the bit with all the boats and the lanterns and shit. That's pretty amazing. And the lanterns are, in fact, like you know, the bouncing lights or whatever she calls them, or the yeah. floating lights are basically like the fucking key thing of the whole. Yeah. So maybe, yeah. Well, actually, I think you might be onto something there because yes. in the first in the first Toy Story, they had the dog, but the dog wasn't in it much because the thing that apparently nobody could work out how the fuck to animate properly was hair and fur. Monsters Inc. Mm. Now it does seem possibly that in Toy Story Two, when they finally managed to nail hair and fur, and also with Monsters Inc. You kind of wonder whether there was a conversation in which they went, right, we can do hair now. What's got a lot of hair in it? Okay, let's do Rapunzel. Don't call it Rapunzel because people won't watch it. Don't leave it does, Disney. It's like it's a lesson for all of us. Mm. I mean, maybe not stuff you thought you needed to learn. That's all for this week's Standard Issue Podzine. Thanks ever so much for joining us. We've had a lovely time. I hope you have too. I'm recording this message 
in my bedroom in North London. And you may be able to hear some noises on the road outside. It's a busy one. And you may also be able to hear my flatmate downstairs not understanding the appropriate use for a door. Next week, join us once again for another Standard Issue podzine. And we will be joined in turn by Standard Issue's resident muso expert, awesome human, Liz Buckley, who's going to be talking about Bjork not Bjork, just FYI. And we'll also be joined by Libby Liebird, who's going to be talking about her play Motherhood. If you'd like to see our faces, why not come along to one of our live shows? Ooh, yeah, live shows. Uh, We are live in London's Leicester Square Theatre pretty much every month. And the next one we have on is on the 14th of December. And we have got... Bloody Dr. Foster, who has a real name and is a real person called Saran Jones, uh, hopefully with greater respect for the General Medical Council's, you know, laws and stuff. She doesn't have to, she's not a doctor in real life, but just if she was, you would hope that she'd be better at that stuff. She is joined by our Sarah. Sarah will be joined by Jojo Moyes, Deborah Francis-White and Stephanie Beecham. So that should be excellent. We're looking forward to it. But before that, on November the 19th, because gender inequality is shit for everyone, not just women, and I'm talking about, you know, men being sad. Basically, it's just, it's rubbish for everyone. So, with that in mind, we have a special gig to celebrate International Men's Day, which is on November the 19th at the Shaw Theatre in London, and we will be joined by, hang on, men. Yeah, we're going to invite some bloody men to come and talk, which is unlike us, we know, but it's all, it's all for a good cause uh, so we'll be shaking a bucket or two for the campaign against living miserably which is a male suicide prevention charity and we will also hope to raise a little bit of awareness for them and um, they're a brilliant charity so it's really awesome to be able to support them the panel consists of pointless is richard osman tv's sanjeev baskar comedy and radio's ellis james and comedy's tom allen it's a pretty cool lineup. We think we think we can all agree on that. So it will be excellent. I suggest you get the to our page on Sarah's website, which is www.sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue. Get the to that page. Have a good look. Have a look at all our shows. There's loads, loads and loads there. We've got Jennifer Saunders in January. Yeah, I know. I know. We have a website that you can look at with all our old archive written stuff as well, which is pretty good. That's www.standardissuemagazine.com. A little bit of admin for you. just need to say big up to Barry Hilton, who composed and indeed recorded our theme music, All Rights Reserved. And then cheers to Dave and Mary Young and John Clare for their help with the stings. Thanks, guys. Um... I don't think I've got anything else to say, so I might just leave you to it now, let you get on with your lives. Do check us out on the Twitter. We are at Standard Issue UK, and I'm at Inspira Jen. Hannah is at That Dunleavy, and Mickey is at Mixter Noonan, and of course Sarah is at Sarah Millican 75. The only thing that remains for me to say is indeed, stay frosty, champs.
under this shoe for all women.